0: Right. Well, let's get started this uh, afternoon, this evening. Um, I'm going to be honest with you today. I've been struggling recently. Aren't you glad you came to Bible study to find out the teacher's got issues? <laughs> they tell you that the pulpit is not a place to do therapy, but on the under- other hand, they say that if you teach from your weakness, you'll never run out of material. <laughs> so here we go. On Christmas Eve, Pastor Barry made a statement that really challenged me. He said, Jesus came to heal our image of God. And it really made me wonder did my image of God need to be healed? Because I have to admit, um, it's been a a rough few years. Uh, I've gone through a season of change and a season of grief. I don't like change, and I certainly don't like grieving. Uh, I'm a wife, a mother, and a grandmother. We have six kids, we have 20 grandchildren. And I'm very relational, and frankly, it wears me out a little bit sometimes. But it's strange, we've got new babies arriving, we got a new grandbaby in November, and, uh, and then we have young adults headed out the door. One of my, my grandsons is taking the bar today and tomorrow, so it's a, it's a little different. So things are just kind of shifting And there have been some family issues. There's been personal loss and personal pain. And I've felt all the feels on this journey, sadness and anger and grief and fear. And so Barry's statement made me wonder, what had all the hard stuff done to my basic view of who God is and what his heart is like? I knew one thing. My heart was weary. Life felt kind of shaky, and I was feeling weak. And sometimes my prayers sounded kind of like this. I know I'm supposed to be trusting you, Lord, but honestly, are you there? Do you care? Why are you letting all these things happen? You know, where is the love? And I wonder if any of you have felt that way over these last few years. I'm pretty sure you have. It's been very rough. I'm thinking lots of you have had your share of personal issues too. And you have family challenges, right? I mean, please tell me, I'm not the only one. (laughs) You've had health issues and job demands and financial woes. You've had pain and you've had heartache. Life is hard. The whole world seems to be aching, seems like to me anyway. You know, the recent earthquakes in uh, Turkey and Syria just for me kind of symbolize how shaky life has been lately. Our hearts are hurting. But what about God's? Do you ever wonder, is he there? Does he care? Does our image of God need to be healed? And I would say, absolutely. Yes, it does. And that's why we need to keep going back to his word to see what his love letter has to say. I love that. The Bible is his love letter to us. His word helps us focus and see him more clearly. And Jesus is there on every single page. He's evidenced that God's heart is for us, and we've definitely seen him as we've studied the parables these last few weeks. <clears throat> They're helping heal our image of God. <clears throat> Each of the parables has been an opportunity for God to plow up the soil of our hearts and plant and water seeds of faith. <clears throat> we've encountered him as the good king who's coming back one day to mete out perfect justice. What a day that will be. We've seen God's heart when Jesus refuses to recoil in the presence of the sinful woman. Instead, he welcomes her touch and her tears and he grants her forgiveness. And last week, Jesus painted a picture of himself as a merciful master who forgives our enormous sin debt and frees us to forgive the ones who've hurt us. And today, we get to see him as a sovereign king who isn't impressed by human rank or human status this king isn't interested in wages. He gives gifts. He gives gifts. In Jesus, God's generous heart of love is on full display and we come face to face with the God of grace. This parable is going to teach us that God is a God of outrageous grace. But I got to tell you, his grace doesn't always make sense, does it? We find the parable in Matthew 20, so you can open up your Bibles or get your devices over to Matthew 20, but even before we do that, we need to look back at chapter 19 for a minute. We need some context. Jesus and his disciples have just encountered two very different types of people as they make their way to Judea. He's coming down from Galilee, headed to Judea. Jesus is entering the final week of his life. In verses 13 to 15, we see that some little children were brought to him. The disciples tried to shoo him off, but Jesus tells them to leave them alone and let them come because he says, God's kingdom is made up of people like these. In that culture, children would have been the least likely to deserve an audience with Jesus the rabbi. They were the last. They're helpless and needy and powerless. They're social nobodies. They don't add anything. They take away. But children ran to him, and he welcomed them. And the disciples were watching all this. Not long after that, a wealthy young man stops Jesus and asks him what he can do to, to gain eternal life. And because Jesus knew his heart and what he really valued, he told the man that what he needed to do was become poor by giving to the poor. And then he could come and follow him. And he went away from Jesus He went away sad. The rich man was first in the eyes of his world. He had wealth and status and power and influence, and he didn't think he needed Jesus. So then Jesus turns to his disciples, and he tells them how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, and they're astonished at that because they believe that God's favor rested on the rich, and their wealth was evidence of that. We think that way too sometimes, don't we? At this point, I think the disciples are thinking, Jesus seems a little confused. Doesn't he know that God's favor is reserved for only certain people? The Jews, not the Gentiles. The rich, not the poor. Men, women, and children, not so much. Important people, righteous people, not nobodies, and certainly not sinners. Haven't you got this all a little backwards, Jesus? So, in order to address that, because of course he's God and he knew what they were thinking, Jesus launches into a story about what the kingdom of God is like. So, he tells them about a landowner who went out and hired some people to work at his vineyards. Some of them clocked in at sunrise, about six o'clock in the morning. And some he went out and got at nine, and then he went out at lunchtime, and then right around three o'clock in the afternoon. And then he hired some late in the afternoon, about 5 o'clock, only an hour or so before quitting time. Only the workers who were hired first knew what he was going to pay, which was a denarius. (coughs) It was a normal day's wage, just enough to buy food for a family for one day. Everybody seemed okay with that until it was payroll time. When the sweaty ones, who had worked 12 hours under a blazing sun, learned that the sweatless ones who had put in barely an hour were gonna receive exactly the same pay. Now, the ones who were hired first expected to receive more by this time. And you and I all know that an expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. <laughs> so when they only got their one denarius, they started to grumble against the landowner. This is what it sounded like. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Now, at this point, we can make a few observations about the landowner And they would have surprised, and actually, the disciples thought it was strange, um, the behavior of the landowner. But they actually point to Jesus. So the disciples would have noticed that the landowner went out. That in itself is a little different. Normally, the foreman or one of their managers would go out and do the hiring. But the landowner went out. And it would have been unusual for him also to keep going out so often. He went out, and then he came back, and then he went out, and he came back again. They're wondering, is, is he a bad manager? Did he forget how many, you know, workers he needed? You know, he, he's not doing a very good job as, a, as the boss. <clears throat> and he seemed totally oblivious to the lateness of the hour, didn't he? Well, this sounds like Jesus to me. Jesus went out into the highways and the byways to find his followers, and it's never too late to follow him home. The thief on the cross was a serious latecomer. Now, everybody also knows you've got the youngest and the hardiest and the best workers in the morning before anybody else hires them, right? By 5 o'clock in the evening, the ones that are left are probably not in very good shape or they're not very good workers, and nobody else wanted them. You might call them leftovers. Jesus loves (laughs) leftovers. But now it does get really crazy. He paid all the workers all the same wage. And it just doesn't make sense. He's thrown away his money. No business owner in his right mind would pay a worker who only worked one hour the same wage as he pays the one who worked 12. You can see why Brennan Manning calls this parable the parable of the crazy farmer. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Jesus' story, the landowner represents him. He's the king who has an unlimited supply of everything we need, and he has no intention of being stingy with his love. I told you, God's grace is outrageous. So let's talk about that word grace for a minute. In the Greek, it's packed with meaning. A good definition would be, grace is the undeserved actions of love and compassion that originate from within the heart of the giver. One commentator I read said, there is in there a sense of, of delight and gladness. Actually makes me think almost giddy. The giver is giddy. He's even more excited to give the gift than the person who's receiving it is to receive it. <coughs> Grace is undeserved love, given. It's favor bestowed for no reason. It's generosity poured out just because and it's totally unexpected. Last week we marveled at the mercy of God, remember that? It erases our debt. We don't get what we deserve. But grace means we get more than we deserve, more than we could ever imagine from a loving God who loves to give good gifts to his kids. Grace flows out of love. The words are almost interchangeable. And Jesus embodied grace. So what does this parable teach us about what it means for us to live in a kingdom of grace that he's bringing to the earth? Well, first, there's a truth. We don't have to earn grace. Then there's a warning. We mustn't be offended by his grace and an invitation. We get to give grace. So let's get started on uh, the first thing, the truth. We don't have to earn God's grace. His love is absolutely free. Now, I don't know about you, <clears throat> pardon me, but that makes me want to take a deep breath <clears throat> and sigh, a sigh of relief, because this is very good news. <clears throat> the sovereign king and creator of the universe gives us grace just because he loves us. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. His very nature is to love and give. And his favorite way to describe himself is Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, is I am the Lord, the Lord, the gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thanks, Kathy. Now, God has always been gracious, and the Old Testament speaks over and over again about God's steadfast love and mercy. But it's not until the New Testament that we see the word grace come fully alive when we see the lengths to which God's love will go as he gives his one and only son to the whole human race as an offering for sin. The only descriptor Jesus ever used for himself was when he was calling to the crowds of people and he was saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I'm gentle and lowly in heart our gentle and lowly savior, is offering rest for our souls, but he wasn't asking us to do anything. His love is a gift, not a transaction. We don't deserve his love, we can't buy his love, and we absolutely don't have to earn his love. That's outrageous grace, and that's the best news ever. But you know, sometimes that is so hard to believe, excuse me ladies, because we live in a world of ungrace. Pausing. <laughs> <clears throat> Hope that helps, but I don't know. <clears throat> we live in a world, <clears throat> pardon me, of ungrace. It tells us we've got to look good, feel good, and make good. I mean, that's the atmosphere we live in, those are the waters we swim in. It's a system of relentless ranking, constant comparison and competition. Winning seems to be everything. That ranking and testing starts so early, in preschool even. And then there's testing to find out if our kids are talented and gifted. Of course they are. (laughs) But but are they as gifted as the next kid? Or are they as smart or athletic or pretty or creative? We've gotten used to phrases in our culture like uh, rank has its privileges, In the corporate world, we talk about climbing a ladder. And now that social media has made its way into our everyday life, we spend an enormous amount of time comparing ourselves to each other. It can be exhausting and discouraging. There's a persistent sense that we have to do better because failure is not an option. It's all up to us. We have to earn our way. I mean, after all, there's no free lunch. The culture of ungrace started all the way back at the beginning with Adam and Eve, when sin entered the good and beautiful world that God made. Adam and Eve's rebellion ruined our relationship with God and with the world and with each other. It pitted us against each other, and like an infection, it just kind of spread. Until in Genesis 6, we read that God looked out and observed that every inclination of our hearts was evil all the time. And in Genesis 6:6 6, 6, it says, "It broke God's heart." But God refused to give up on us, and so He set in motion a rescue plan that was thousands of years in the making. He promised His people, "I will come down and rescue you." And that rescue plan included the giving of his one and only son, who would kill sin. He'd kill death. By actually letting it infect him, so to speak, he let the power of it fall on him and then he took all that sin to the grave, all for us. This generous, outrageous act of love was the only way to restore the relationship between us and God so we could live with him in an unbroken relationship forever. Ungrace had a grip on us, but Jesus came and brought his kingdom of grace to our weary world and he didn't stay dead. He got up, and now he offers his life and his love to us as a gift. I don't think the Bible could say it more clearly than Ephesians 2 and 8. It says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not because we earned it, but because he loves us. Our deepest need was met through the gift of eternal life through Jesus. And all we have to do is run to him and receive that gift like little children on Christmas morning. That's who he attracted, the little ones, the least, the poor, the needy, the weak, the powerless, the blind, the lame, the broken, the brokenhearted, the humble, the hungry, the lonely, and the forgotten. Can you see yourself anywhere in that list? I can. I hope you can too because that means that you're among the ones who who realize they could never earn God's love and acceptance. The gospel of God's grace means we don't have to. And this is good news to anyone who hardly ever gets to be first in line. People, kids, like my grandson Logan. Logan was uh, born with Sturge-Weber syndrome he had a very large Port Weinstein birthmark on his face and head, on the right side. You can see it coming down on his forehead there. Uh, we later learned that underneath there, there was significant brain involvement because some of his blood vessels never formed properly. <clears throat> he had, because it was on the right side of his brain, he had left side weakness, up and down from his arm all the way down to his leg, and he hardly ever used his left hand. <clears throat> it was. It was as though it wasn't even there. And sometimes he would just say, it's broken. And um, MRIs looked terrible from the very first day he had one. Nobody could ever say how this was going to affect him. Would he ever walk? Would he ever talk? Could he learn to read and write? We had no idea. But little by little, he began to use that left hand. And we noticed it, especially when we threw him a ball. Uh, when he was old enough, and he wasn't really that old, but he started to reach for it just a little bit. And the day he caught that ball was like it was was his birthday. We celebrated, believe me. So Logan's favorite thing was to play with any kind of ball. Well, Logan is 15 now, and he does all the things. He reads, he writes, he walks, he talks, he runs, but probably not quite as well as other kids his age. Yet, I'm telling you still, his favorite thing is kicking a soccer ball around or shooting baskets, and he's on a basketball team now. The other day, we couldn't get to the game, so he came over and he told me all about it um, in great detail, (laughs) quarter by quarter, who did what. (laughs) And he was especially excited to tell me all about how it ended with his team winning on a buzzer beater. Just He saying, Grammy, we won by two points. And later, I found out the coach never put Logan in. He never got in the game. It's hard when you're never the first. Bob Goff tells a story similar to this about how awful it was for him to be in middle school in gym class when it was time to pick teams. He says, picking teams in gym class starts with the best and goes to the worst. And then he says, I love this, if I ever teach a gym class, I'm going to draw a big circle in the middle of the group of kids, and I'm going to say, everybody's in. The Bible says God loved the whole world, every person in it, not just the cool ones or the knowledgeable ones or the, or the shiny ones, the smiley ones, um, or the ones who believed all the right things or made all the right moves. He doesn't want anybody to go through life without him, and he doesn't want anyone to spend eternity without him. It's not a matter of who's in and who's out. He wants us all. He wants all of us in there, in that circle. Don't you long for a world where everyone's in and everyone's welcome and everyone gets to play? That's the team I want Logan to be on, Team Jesus. Jesus knows the score. We just think back to the master in our last parable. He knew exactly how much the servant owed him, 10,000 talents. Jesus knows the score, but guess what? He's not keeping score. I love what Lewis Smead says. What we need is a sense that God accepts us, owns us, holds us, affirms us, and would never let go of us, even if he was not too much impressed with what he had on his hands. (laughs) Oh, I'll tell you, though, he is impressed with us. Every one of us. In fact, if Jesus had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. (laughs) Oh, how we need to believe this so we can do what Brennan Manning recommended, to live in the wisdom of accepted tenderness. Can you imagine what a relief it would be? You and I just need to receive the love he's offering. That's all it is. So if that's something you haven't done yet, I hope you'll talk to your leader or Amy before you leave here today. All you have to do is say yes to God's offer of his son. God's outrageous gift of grace in Jesus means we don't have to earn his love, that's the truth. And now we're gonna take a look at the warning. We mustn't be offended by his grace. The fact that God is a generous giver sounds like good news, right? But it turns out not everybody thinks so. The workers who were hired first weren't very happy, were they? They seemed offended by the landowner's generosity. They grumbled against him. They had expectations that weren't met and they judged the way he was distributing his gifts. Peter had questions about compensation too. Remember, he and the rest of the disciples had left everything for Jesus and his question was, what about us? What about the reward for me and for them? Jesus basically said, well, you get me for all eternity. And yes, you do get rewards in the next life. He would take care of them. He just wanted them to trust him. James and John were thinking that maybe they should get rewarded too. They wanted to be great in this kingdom. They wanted to be on Jesus' right hand and on his left when he ascended to his throne. I think their image of God needed some healing, don't you? And it came in just a few days because Jesus was going to show them what it meant to be great in his kingdom. It meant washing feet and dying for your friends. In John 10, John the Baptist was pretty troubled. He sat in prison and he started to wonder if he'd gotten it all wrong. Jesus was out there healing people left and right, and yet he, Jesus' own cousin, had been condemned to death. You know what Jesus said to John and the disciples? He said, blessed is the one who isn't offended in me. And I know, sometimes we struggle with this too. When we don't understand what God is doing or we compare our situation to somebody else's, we have a lot of questions, don't we? Like, why does God let some people suffer and others seem to live on easy street? Why did the guilty go unpunished and the innocent are barely surviving? In a moment of humility, um, we might wonder why we're so blessed and others live with so much pain and sorrow. But in a desperate moment, we ask, what about me, God? Why doesn't my marriage look like hers? Why does she have all those kids and I don't have any? Why do I struggle with depression and she doesn't? Why is life so hard? We don't understand what he's doing, and we're tempted to judge the way he distributes his gifts. I don't have answers to those really hard questions. But in moments like these where I'm wrestling with uh, all the things I don't understand, I remind myself that that's way above my pay grade. He's God and I'm not. And it also helps me to go back to his word, to read passages like the one the Apostle Paul had in uh, the book of Romans. It's a beautiful doxology where he pours forth praise for a God he doesn't understand either, but he praises him anyway. Listen to what he says. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. We have to trust that our creator knows what he's doing, and we can trust him because we know he's a God of love and outrageous grace. And we were wrestling with this uh, in leaders meeting last week, uh, that question about sovereignty, and I think you guys um, spent some time working through that too. And Betsy, our AM coordinator, was talking about what it's like to be the parent of a son who has autism. She talked about listening to him scream for 90 minutes at a time, day after day when he was younger. And she talked about her struggle with envying other moms whose biggest concern was Johnny refusing to eat his vegetables. The why question just sat there. But Betsy said she had learned to keep going back to God's character, to who she knew him to be. She knew him to be kind and good, compassionate and wise. And so she trusted once again, over and over again, She trusted him because she reminded herself that he's a God of outrageous grace. I also have a friend, LaRue. She trusts God, too. I have a lot of friends who trust God, (laughs) just so you know. LaRue's in the morning class, and she has this great big smile, and she's got a lot of things going on in her life, hard things, people close to her who are really hurting and struggling. She has some health challenges as well. And if you ask her about them, she's going to be honest with you, and she'll tell you. But before you leave her, she'll usually do two things. She'll give you a hug, and then she'll give you three little words. She always says, God's got this. We can trust God. He loves us. That's the truth. The cross of Christ reminds us of his grace. We don't need to be offended by his sovereign choices or worry about whether he'll take care of us. We don't have to wonder whether we're first or last in line because Jesus doesn't even have a line. He's drawn this great big circle, and he wants all of us inside there with him. He's overflowing with extravagant love, and he wants us to invite others in. He wants us all, and that's the invitation. God is inviting us to be gracious because the world is starving for grace. People need to see grace in action. Jesus said, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then in Philippians, Paul writes a very challenging verse, I have to say. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. We live in a warped and crooked generation. That passage fits and has fit for thousands of years. We've been graced in a world of ungrace. He's given us the gift of his love freely. We get to go freely and give it out. When we choose grace instead of grumbling, we get to be shiny. That's what these passages said. We get to draw circles around us and pull people in and point to the generosity of our good God we get to help heal their image of God. I mean, what if we did that? What if we actually let people cut in line at the grocery store? Or we let the lady cut us off in traffic and when she went by, we smiled at her. She'd probably drive right off the road. What if we baked cookies and brought them to our cranky boss? What if we did the dishes even though it wasn't our turn? I mean your roommate might keel over. What if we gave our husbands a hug instead of advice? He might kill over too. <laughs> but that's the whole point. What if we shocked and gladdened people's hearts with outrageous generosity? What do you think it would do to the world we live in? It might turn it upside down. God is a God of outrageous grace and there's more than enough of his love to go around. So I dare you, ladies, give it away. Go out there and be shiny. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great grace. You are beyond our imagining, really. We know we don't deserve it, but we are so glad that you love us. Pray now, Father, that you will uh, remind us of uh, how gracious you are, how giving and how loving, so that we can go out there And do in our world what you have done for us. Pray for these women, that you will take care of them, Lord, in every way. Heal their hearts. Heal their image of you so they know you to be the good and gracious God you are. In Jesus' name, amen.